The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media U.S. It's the PR Week Podcast in partnership with Johnson & Johnson. On today's episode... There is investment that needs to be made in making sure that we produce physicians, nurses healthcare professionals of all ilk, right? We want healthcare to look like all of us to deliver those healthcare needs. Hi, everyone. This is Gideon Fedozad, Editorial Director of Custom at PR Week. I am very pleased to welcome you to this very special podcast, and I want to thank Johnson & Johnson for supporting it. This is truly going to be a treat. I could spend this entire podcast rattling off the accolades and accomplishments of our guest today, but I also know how much valuable wisdom she has to share with all of you, so I'm just going to focus on this. She is a leader at one of, if not the, most relevant entities in the healthcare space. She's a highly decorated executive with numerous honors from the likes of Savoy Magazine, BlackDoctors.org, and the National Association of Female Executives, who has recognized her as Healthcare Champion of the Year. And, of course, this year, PR Week is recognizing her as part of its Health Influencer 30 list. She's had an amazing career, and we're going to focus on that today. We're also going to put a spotlight on a topic that I know is near and dear to her heart how the healthcare sector is, can, and should serve health equity. This amazing leader is Vanessa Broadhurst, EVP of Global Corporate Affairs at Johnson & Johnson. I am so honored you are joining me today, Vanessa. I'm so glad to be joining you. It's great to be here. Thank you. And um, after the podcast is over, you can tell me how that introduction compared to some of the other ones that you've gotten over the course (laughs) of your career. You did just fine. You did just fine. Oh, well, there you go. So... I appreciate that. And I'm sure we'll do just fine for the rest of this podcast, too. So I have, I, you know, I have a few questions um, ready for you, Vanessa. And like I said, I kind of want to talk a, a little bit about your career sure. and a lot about health equity. But I'm going to start with your career. Okay. You've had quite an incredible career in pharma. Started at Abbott and now, obviously, Johnson & Johnson and a few places in between, too. What drove you to pursue a professional path in the healthcare space? Yeah. So in many ways, um, I got very lucky in my career because I absolutely love what I do. But the way it all started was, believe it or not, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, volunteered in an emergency room and decided not to go to med school. So I was a little bit lost for my first formative years, but found my way uh, back to business school. Still really wanted to be involved in the healthcare space and ended up in healthcare marketing. And I think I got very lucky because I wanted to, you know, originally pursue a, a career in medicine, but really because I was so interested in psychology. And I really think that marketing is the psychology of business. So connecting all those dots together is what really drove me to pursue a career in healthcare. I have absolutely no doubt that that psych- psychology background, interest, whatever it is, has certainly come into play. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the communications industry, particularly in the healthcare space, who probably wish they had some background in that as well. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, I want to talk about health equity because, again, at the end of the day, that's really the focal point here. What are sure. some of the key learnings? And I know this could be hours, so I'm going to ask you to try to limit it a little bit here. But <laughs> what are some of the key learnings from the pandemic with regards to health equity? Yeah. So, you know, the pandemic really exposed the disparities in healthcare access that existed before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, people became more aware of what was going on. And we saw that, you know, social factors like income, housing, education, 
even access to healthy food really played a massive role in determining, you know, not only just who gets sick, but who gets sick and stays sick or has long-term consequences and who recovers. And these are really the social determinants of health that really need our attention. And during the pandemic, it became really obvious that simple access to healthcare is a major issue, right? So during the pandemic, people struggled to struggle to get tested, to get treated. You know, ultimately, when the vaccines came around, they struggled to get vaccinated because of limits to healthcare services in in geographic areas. And really, you know, bridging this gap is so important to to get to more health equity. And I'll tell you. Um, there was a big change during the pandemic, and that was telehealth, and that was a game changer for many. I know, you know, I have children, and it was great to be able to call, you know, their doctor and just get a simple diagnosis. It's not actually accessible to everyone, not equally accessible. Not everyone has reliable internet, access to those types of connections and technology. So we need to even ensure that digital health solutions are equitable. And we saw that um, also we need diversity in the healthcare workforce, right? So having a healthcare team that looks and looks like you, that understands your background and, and your life circumstances is really critical as well. And that can make a big difference to um, people's care. Uh-huh. And then maybe the last thing I'll just highlight is that there's global interconnectedness of health, right? And we talk a lot about the U.S. And, and think a lot about the U.S. because that's where we are. But there's a really important global collaboration that goes into health equity as well. And the pandemic just increased the sense of urgency around addressing many, many of these items. Oh, thank you for that. And, you know, oftentimes when there is a major event such as the pandemic, um, problems are exposed and perhaps mm-hmm. they become more highlighted. But the major thing is Does anything get done about them? That's kind of where the next question is going to go. Now, clearly, uh, Johnson & Johnson is a leader, not just in the healthcare space. I believe it's number 40 on the Fortune 500. Um, It is one of the biggest companies in the world. It's one of the most recognizable companies, brands, names in the world. So I know that the Health for Humanity is a big, big campaign for Johnson & Johnson right now. How is J&J driving Health for Humanity for patients and minimizing bias? And can you share how the company is leveraging AI to change the trajectory of health for humanity. Absolutely. So why don't I start with, uh, you know, our champion of health for humanity. And to us at Johnson & Johnson, that really means extending health care to everyone, really increasing everybody's health. So we've seen over and over in research that bias can lead to people receiving poor treatment and accurate diagnoses or experiencing delays. So we really think about how we drive healthcare for all. So the first thing that we do, because we are a pharmaceutical and med device company, is we drive ethical research development practices. And that also makes sure that we diversify our clinical trials. And that was another big change that came during COVID. The COVID vaccine really was paramount in the diversification of clinical trials and really thinking about how to do things differently. The second thing we want to do is encourage and invest in culturally competent care. So we have invested in programs like there's one called Illustrate Change, which essentially is a new initiative that we launched that aims to increase diversity and representation in medical illustrations. And it it is a growing library of diverse medical illustrations of people of color, because if you think about it, 
You've probably gone to the doctor, you've gone to the dentist, you've seen an illustration on the wall of some ilk, but have you ever seen one of any person of color? There are really very, very few diverse medical illustrators. So that's another example of one of the things that we're working on to increase culturally competent care. That, then, that's brilliant. That's just, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just reacting. Yeah, to saying that's really brilliant because I just never would, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. And it amazingly started with this one illustration of a African-American mother, right? And the, you know how you see those illustrations of babies in utero and these were, it was an African-American baby, African-American mom, and it went viral. So um, that's how it came to our attention, this, this medical illustrator, and it kind of grew from there. Awesome. You also asked me about AI, right? So, you know, with AI, we think AI has really the potential to change um, so many things within healthcare. And it has the ability to potentially even help um, many people get access to very competent care. But, you know, the, the things that we think about with AI and, you know, even analytics is making sure that as we're advancing into the AI space through marketing, through drug discovery, all of these things that, that we use advanced analytics for, we want to make sure it's equitable because we know that if not used correctly, if the data isn't really um, pristine and protected and secure, confidential and ethical, ethically, like really made sure that there are no biases in the system, it has the potential to exacerbate the biases that exist today. Mm -hmm. So we're working on a number of different things in AI, everything from you know how we find patients for clinical trials, with COVID, we had advanced analytics to see where the disease was spreading next, and we could be predictive in our clinical trials and our clinical trial sites to using advanced analytics to diversify our clinical trials because we are using um, technology to really reach further into the community. Um, so there's just many ways that, that we're using AI. And that actually kind of segues into my next question because one of if you drill really really deep into the issues here one of the biggest problems is lack of access to healthcare but in a lot of cases some of the problems that are the most difficult to solve are the you know the don'ts and the don't haves and all those kinds of things those aren't so easy to recognize sometimes so wouldn't mind if you elaborated just a little bit more on how technology is helping J&J identify specific areas where limited healthcare access or non-existent healthcare access is a particular issue. Yeah, well, one of the um, one of the solves is is telemedicine, which definitely got bigger during during the pandemic. And you know, if you can imagine a place, we know of food deserts are also health deserts, right? Where you can live in a place where getting to a doctor's office or hospital is a really long or arduous journey. And I know people are probably thinking inner cities. Well, it's really more even the rural communities that have significant challenges where you know. Even an OB can be, you know, hundreds of miles away. Hmm. So, you know, this is where you try and find people where they're at. And although telemedicine can't replace everything, it is a good solve for, for many individuals' needs. Um, and people can use their smartphones or computers. You know, it's in many ways on, on some elements, um, not every, but having a visit in the comfort of your home. And it can be a lifeline for those who can't easily travel also, you know, we've tried to use technology 
so people can enroll in clinical trial work and not have to come in as much, right? Because, you know, getting diverse individuals into a clinical trial is complicated. There are a lot of trusts in medicine, trust, trust issues in healthcare, trust issues sometimes with our industry, right? So even when you break through all of those, it's still very difficult. And you can imagine it's a lot easier to, to enroll in a clinical trial where you can come in for five visits and maybe, you know, have a remote monitoring on another what would have been five visits than to have to come to a medical facility for 10 visits. So that's another way that we're trying to use, use technology. There are also, you know, people using mobile clinics equipped with technology that can, that can visit underserved areas. But, you know, we have to do more in the health equity space to make those permanent solutions. And then, you know, really by using AI and analyzing data, we can pinpoint areas that are in dire need of healthcare services. And it's really going to take a village, right? The, the healthcare industry can't solve all of this. Pharmaceuticals, medtech, it's got to be also hospitals, physicians, nurses, and, and the community of care really coming together to solve some of these really, really important uh, needs in the system. Well, I really appreciate that. And just, just from your own personal perspective, COVID is not ever going to go away completely, but we're obviously not in the heart of the, we're not where we were a year and a half ago, two years ago, clearly. Um, Definitely better. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you uh, are you satisfied with the pro? Um, well, this is a tough question, but do you feel that um, are you satisfied that at least some progress has been made on some of these issues, or is it still too much of a problem for you to even entertain a thought like that? Listen, I think there's still large issues here. Um, progress has been made, right? I, mm -hmm. I think we're definitely seeing more diversity in clinical trials. We've got a great campaign called um, Research Includes Me. We've got another one, which is for diverse populations getting into clinical trial research, and we've seen great progress there. We saw a lot of people delaying taking care of themselves during the pandemic. Hmm. And this really struck, you know, low-income and diverse populations even more significantly, where, you know, you can imagine you're, you're sandwiched on a good day in between your parents who are getting older, your kids, and what can happen is that your own healthcare needs drop to the bottom of the pile and people don't go get their um, preventative visits. They don't get screenings, et cetera, hypertension, cancers. During the pandemic, you know, we saw post pandemic people coming in with more severe health conditions than, um, than they did prior because they waited longer to get help. And I know, you know, even my own family, I, my dad, uh, he's doing really well, but he was diagnosed with bladder cancer a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, wow, dad, you know, thank goodness you actually said something. You went and got screened. You did this. You did that and took care of yourself. It could have been so much worse if you hadn't done that. He's like, what are you talking about, kid? I waited a year after I started having symptoms. So this is this is where we kind of see um, some of the opportunities that still exist. I think there is still, you know, uh, more work to do in the system around culturally competent care, whether that's education and really helping the healthcare community to create a trusting relationship with those patients. Because you can imagine, you know, sometimes those health conversations are difficult or, or personal or sometimes potentially embarrassing conversations. And you need to have a medical practitioner that you're comfortable with. Uh, we can do that through establishing culturally competent care 
I also think there is investment that needs to be made in making sure that we produce um, physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals of all ilk, right? We want uh, healthcare to look like all of us uh, to, liver, to deliver those healthcare needs. So whereas I think we've made progress, I think there's still a long way to go here, um, as you can, as you're probably not surprised by actually. No, not really. But um, I'm glad I'm glad your dad's doing better. And does he does he really call you a kid? He does. Wow. That's <laughs> I, I will not do that. You're always a kid to somebody, right? I'll, I'll be a kid for as long as I can having Asian parents. Right? Uh, well, well, OK, fair enough. This is kind of a nice segue between your career and the, uh, the, the, the issues that we're talking about today. How did you pivot from leading several multi-billion dollar U.S. businesses at Janssen, such as the Cardiovascular Infectious Disease Division, to lead global mm -hmm. corporate affairs, communications, brand equity, and global public health and community impact like you do now? It's, uh, you're still in healthcare, no doubt, but that's an interesting little shift. How did you pivot? How did you make that pivot so smoothly? How did I pivot so smoothly? Um well, listen, I have always thought about my career more of a, as more of a patchwork quilt. I've done a lot of different things, right? I started in the industry in sales. I went into analytics. I went into marketing. I read, ran marketing operations. I've run, you know, global businesses. I, I've just done a lot of different things. So I, the way I look at my career is, you know, what am I going to learn? What am I going to contribute? And this role um, was a unique opportunity to contribute and learn in a different way. So prior to this role, I was running the, the global part of our pharmaceutical, our innovative medicine organization. So working very closely with R&D, business development. Um, I actually had data sciences, commercial, global commercial data sciences, as well as value access and pricing. So it was it was a complex job, but it was pharmaceuticals. This job, I had the opportunity to grow go across at that time all three sectors and contribute in a different way. Now, some of it feels very familiar, right? Like the corporate brand equity work, et cetera. That is the heart of marketing and something I am just it's right in the wheelhouse. Other things are a little bit uh, a step away. For example, the communications function, which um, I've worked closely with, you know that communications and marketing are very closely related and linked. And then I had the opportunity to take on our global public health and global community impact work, which is more philanthropic kind of work, an area that I've always been passionate about and interested in with health equity. So I think it was a natural kind of advancement of my career once again. And it's a big role. It's on the executive committee of Johnson & Johnson. I report to our CEO. And that was also a really amazing opportunity just to contribute to the corporation in a different way. So, you know, some days it seems seamless. Other days it seems bumpy. But, uh, but I am really lucky to be here and very, very much enjoying the role and hopefully doing something good in the process as well. No doubt on the latter part, for sure. So, and it certainly yeah. seems like a smooth transition to me. And speaking of transitions, I want to go back to a full-fledged career question for you. I always love sure. I always love asking this question because you'll get some fascinating answers. But what is the best advice you received earlier in your career? And what do you tell young PR professionals who are looking to make their mark? And that doesn't necessarily, even in the healthcare space, just 
making their mark. So that was really two questions in one. So let me go back. What is the best advice you received early in your career? Let's start with that. Okay. There are probably two things, right? One was there is no right next job. So when I was early in my career, I was very type A and I actually thought like there was one job that was the right next job. And to be honest, you have so many roles in your career. I I really pivoted and probably a little later than maybe it would have been beneficial to, but (laughs) I really pivoted probably 15 years ago and said, how do I continue to build on my skill sets versus like that right next job? It doesn't matter what drug, it doesn't matter you know, necessarily what team, but how do I create a complementary set of skills and then look maybe a job or two ahead? That's it. Don't, you know, don't try and get to CEO from your entry level position. Think a couple jobs and ahead and, and what you might need to get there. And then the other thing, I, I think that we all have a little self-doubt in ourselves as we're starting out and a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I remember talking to one of my managers, early managers one day about a role that I got. And I think I was expressing like, hey, you know, are you sure I'm the right person for this role? You know, this is a, a big job. And she gave me great advice. She's like, it doesn't matter how you got here. Do not look back, right? Just keep going. You you earn every role you, you have. And there's a reason you're here. And, um, you know, do your best and make your mark. So, so don't look in the rearview mirror. Oh, that's terrific. Now, even though you're still a kid to some people, I know that there's a lot of real younger kids. I mean, you're young too, but I mean, like just getting out of college and stuff that are looking to people like you for some motivation. And so what's some of the advice that you give to young communicators um, who are looking to make their mark? Yeah, I think the first thing is it's so important early in your career. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the conversation is you really have to love what you do. You're going to spend a lot of years doing whatever it is you do. Look to do something you love and look to find an organization that culturally fits for you. I think one of the reasons that I've been successful is I've had the benefit of having both of those over my careers in a couple of in a couple of companies where I really found an organizational fit and I found something that I love to do. So the hours didn't seem like so many hours and I had great colleagues and collaborators. And then the second piece of advice I would say to young professionals is, you know, again, what I said about looking maybe a couple of jobs ahead. Try not to get too caught up in like the politics of the day to day and who's in what's job. But focus on yourself, your own development, invest in yourself, continue to learn at all times and and look to uh, deliver and and make your mark. That's awesome. And this is this is the place where I really want to close it because I think it's perfect. Um, You've advocated for multiple causes over the years, which speaks to your personal purpose and passion for putting people first from healthcare disparities, which we've obviously spoken about, to adoption, to the need for greater support for caregivers. I even believe there was a period during your career where you focused on a um, on pet health as well, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I am actually on the board of directors for a pet health company called Zoetis. Yes. And I have two dogs. I love pets. I'm a big advocate of pets. Oh, I have, I have two also, but I don't think anyone wants to hear about that right now. But this is, see, she, she's even a dog lover. She, she, I, told, I told you she was a perfect podcast guest. I knew it. But anyway, want to talk? Dogs. can you talk to me a little bit about what, what motivated you to spark change and make a difference for others? Or maybe better asked, what made you feel that you were the kind of person who come into your career and actually make that kind of difference for others? Clearly you do, 
I want to know what motivated well, you to do that. I would say like a lot of people, I mean, I didn't start out knowing that I could make an impact, right? When I started in my career, I went to business school and I got pretty lucky in doing so that I, I accidentally made the right choices. But I will tell you, as my career progressed, I saw the type of impact that I could make and that I could have on other people. And the, in some situations, the power that I had to make change or speak up for change. And that's what I've tried to do, whether it's for health equity. And I know I'm, you know, I am an African-American woman. I live in my skin. When I go to the physician, I am not an executive of Johnson & Johnson. I'm an African-American woman showing up at, at their doorstep. And I've had my own set of, of health equity challenges. But so it's important to speak up about that. I'm, you mentioned adoption. I am adopted. And I, um, for years, actually volunteered to talk to parents, potential parents who were thinking about adoption. I think all of these areas are areas that I've experienced in my own life. And I feel that I have something to give back or say, something to help make somebody else's journey just a little bit easier or more sure. And those are the areas that I, I try and lean in on. You know, Vanessa, I have to say, one of my favorite parts of what I do at PR Week is when I get the opportunity to spend time with people like you. I mean, you, you are, no, seriously, you are, it's truly a delight and an honor. And, um, you know, we, I think everyone out there, we, we, we learned a lot from, but we also learned a lot about truly one of the leaders in this industry. And and I think one of her three dogs agrees. So unless that was mine. You hear that? Yeah, I think that's yours. I, I can't even, I can't even tell. It's, it's someone's dog and I love it. But my only regret about podcasts with leaders such as Vanessa is that we don't have more time, but the time we just had together was very well spent. And I know everyone out there listening feels the same way. Very thankful to you, Vanessa, for joining us today. And uh, I know you have kids and dogs and a whole world to get back to, so I'm gonna let you do it. I also want to thank Johnson & Johnson for supporting this podcast. And of course, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Until next time, this is Gideon Fiddles out of PR Week, wishing you all a great rest of your day.